Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Assistant Professor Catherine Jenkins about sex and sexuality. Welcome to the program. Hi, it's nice to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm an assistant professor uh, of philosophy at the University of Nottingham in the UK. I've held that job since about 2016. And before that, I studied my undergraduate degree in philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Um, I then also did a master's there, and I did my PhD at the University of Sheffield, also in the philosophy department. Um, and there I worked with Professor Jennifer Saul and Professor Miranda Fricker. Um, so I've had a really great time uh, studying philosophy and in the last few years teaching it and researching it as well. So what was it that inspired you to study sexuality? Well, that actually came about through teaching. So when I was a philosophy PhD student at Sheffield, there was an opportunity for students to teach a whole module. So we were all teaching like seminars uh, on, on modules that were being led by, by um, permanent members of staff usually. But there was an opportunity sometimes for a PhD student to actually lead or convene a module. And one of the modules that needed doing was philosophy of sex. And because I was, at the time, uh, focusing primarily on feminist philosophy, it was kind of close enough, there's a lot of overlap. I thought about material on sexual objectification and pornography that I was already familiar with, and I thought, yeah, I can have a go at that. So I ended up teaching a module on um, philosophy of sex, essentially, and uh, having to get up to speed quite fast with the kind of analytic philosophy of sex, um, where that didn't particularly overlap with feminist philosophy. And it was a really stimulating and fun experience. Really, really enjoyed it. I found it very easy to engage students with the topic, as you might imagine. And I just found lots of really interesting questions there. And through doing that module, I then introduced a module on the philosophy of sex at the University of Nottingham, which I teach. It's a third-year module. The more I taught it, um, I started to find some questions that I found interesting to research. And, and one of my papers came out of, um, came out of the teaching that I did there. Could you explain about sexual desire? Yeah, so sexual desire is one of the topics that I had to get to speak with quite fast when I first started teaching philosophy of sex. So there's this sort of interesting debate in the literature about the nature of sexual desire. What is it? So one area that I think people tend to sort of agree on is it's a desire for a particular kind of pleasure, so a desire for sexual pleasure. So then the question becomes, what is sexual pleasure? And there's a few different ways of, of sort of trying to define sexual pleasure or trying to say, you know, okay, we've got a pleasure. How do we know whether it's a sexual pleasure or not? So you can try and define it by its cause. So some people think that it's about a pleasure that is caused by contact with another person's body. There are some problems with that. You might think that some sexual pleasure doesn't involve contact with anyone else's body apart from your own. 
There's also obviously lots of contact with other people's bodies that might feel pleasurable, uh, just giving a friend a hug. You wouldn't necessarily want to say of sexual pleasure. And another way to go is to try and define sexual pleasure by something like an intrinsic feature of the, of the type of pleasure. So one way of thinking about that is that it's pleasure that's experienced in certain parts of the body or has to do with producing certain effects in, in parts of the body. That one, I think, is quite tricky because it's quite hard to pin down which parts of the body. So people talk about the sexual parts of the body, but I actually think that that's much more complicated and harder to define than is often treated as being. And final, another, another way to go in defining sexual pleasure that stays with this idea of it being kind of some intrinsic feature of the pleasure that, that makes it sexual is people have, have talked about the way that sexual pleasure seems to have some kind of intrinsically reciprocal structure. So person A uh, sexually desires person B or takes sexual pleasure in, in something that's going on with person B and person B also takes sexual pleasure in what's going on and, and then you know, the first person kind of enjoys the fact that the second person is into it and vice versa and you seem to have this kind of iterating structure of a kind of relational reciprocal kind of mutually building desire or pleasure and that I think is I think that captures something about sexual pleasure at least in, in, in some cases when it's going well and I think you can say that about lots of other things that don't seem sexual. So that seems to be a bit like the way humor works. Like if I find something funny, you might find it funny that I find it funny and we kind of laugh together in that way. But I don't, and so that seems to have a similar reciprocal structure to, to humor, for example, there. But I don't think it counts, therefore, as sexual. So actually, I think defining sexual pleasure by kind of by inference sexual desire is actually uh, quite complicated. My own view is that we need to pay a bit more attention to the socially constructed aspects of this question. So I'm, I'm tempted to think that what we need to do is kind of be upfront about seeing the distinction between sexual and non-sexual desire as something that's a product of our particular social situation and customs and practices. But I haven't got super far down that road. It's more of a, uh, a direction for future research. Would you have a definition of a sexual act or sexual activity? I actually don't know. So one sort of obvious way to think about it would be to try and explain that via the notion of sexual pleasure, which, as I explained, is quite complicated. I actually am quite sceptical of the idea that there can be a single definition of a sexual act or a sexual activity. Um, I understand that there's circumstances where you might need to make that definition. For example, if you were thinking about a sexual harassment policy, for example, it seems quite important to distinguish between like what is a sexual act or sexual activity. So I don't want to kind of reject the need for some kind of definition altogether, but I'm just a bit skeptical that there could be a single definition that would do the job in all contexts. I think I think it matters a lot sort of why you want to distinguish between sexual and non-sexual activity, why you're asking the question. So, for example, if I wanted to have a conversation with a, with a sexual partner about whether it was all, you know, whether it was okay within the terms of our relationship for us to have, to, you know, engage in sexual activity with other people, I think the definition of sexual activity that we would settle on is going to depend on what's important to us and what kind of experiences we value and our kind of priorities and needs in that situation. So I think it's an interesting question, but I can't give you a definition that would kind of suit all, all purposes and all cases. Oh, yeah, that's fair enough. Could you explain about sexual preferences and orientation? Ah, this is something I find really interesting, and this is one of the parts of the course that I most enjoy teaching. Students um, tend to come in thinking that they know exactly what sexual orientation is and how it relates to sexual preferences and quickly find it's a lot more complicated. 
So it's always like we have certain uh, preferences, certain kind of relatively, you know, for some people more, for some people less, but relatively perhaps stable patterns of uh, what we find attractive in a potential sexual partner. But what's really interesting is that some of those preferences count as making up, kind of composing our sexual orientation, uh, as we normally think of that, and others don't. So somebody who is exclusively attracted to men, that would count as being part of their sexual orientation. Someone who's exclusively attracted to redheads or people who are bookish or whatever, that doesn't count as part of their orientation, even if those preferences are really stable and lasting and um, play a strong role in, in what they're interested in sexually. So that's kind of an interesting question by itself. Why do we take certain preferences, ones to do roughly with something to do something like sex and or gender, um, and make that count, make those special, make those kind of pick those out and place those above other preferences as being like more significant in defining the kind of person that you are. So there's lots to, lots to think about there. Another question is about precious social structures can influence our preferences. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of this from my own case. My sexual orientation is uh, bisexual or pansexual, depending on which labels are on offer. I'm attracted to people of all genders. But have to, to confess that when it comes to men, I tend to only be attracted to men who are taller than me. Um, I'm quite a tall woman. Now, if I just objectively uh, found the property of being tall you know, an attractive one, you would think that that would apply to people of all genders, and it doesn't. It's definitely just men. And I think that that the most plausible explanation for that, and certainly the explanation that I would, uh, I would be inclined to give, is that there's this sexist stereotype in our society that if, you know, a couple includes a man and a woman, then the man should be taller than the woman, and otherwise it's a bit, it's a bit comical, or it's, you know, it's just not, um, not ideal. And that's, I think, a very strong stereotype, and I think the best explanation for the pattern of sexual preferences that I experience is that I've internalized this, this stereotype, right? So where does that leave me? Like, what do we do when we look at ourselves and say, oh, okay, it looks like these oppressive social structures have influenced the way we experience our sexual preferences? It's not clear what the response to that ought to be. Uh, so I think that's another kind of interesting question when it comes to thinking about sexual preferences and sexual orientation. Do you think that everybody has a sense of sexual identity? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it depends what you what you mean by sexual identity. Um, again, we tend to think about sexual identities, I think, uh, the, the kind of prevalence of, of emphasizing gender and sex-based preferences as being particularly crucial that I just mentioned in relation to sexual orientation. I think that kind of applies here as well, kind of filters through. So, so, so I suppose colloquially you might think that when people hear sexual identity, they think about, like, are you, are you gay, are you a lesbian, are you straight, that kind of thing. I mean, I think it just depends how you define it. So I think many people, but perhaps not most, probably have a sense of themselves as a, as a being that has a sexual dimension to their existence. Whether that's enough to have some sense like that is enough to have a sexual identity, or whether by sexual identity we mean something more like your a kind of social position or a social role that's to do with your sexual orientation, perhaps. So I think if we define it more broadly, I think there's probably still going to be some people who just don't have a for whom sexuality just doesn't really play a role in their sense of self. But if you define it more narrowly, then there might be people whose sense of their sexual self doesn't really kind of follow the socially dominant patterns of thinking about types of people in that way. So that's not a particularly uh, a cogent answer. I think that the question of sexual identity is really complicated and there's like a lot to unpack there. 
You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Catherine Jenkins about sex and sexuality. What are some of the normative issues involved in sexuality? Oh, it's interesting that you ask about that because it really follows on from what we've just been talking about in terms of um, sexual preferences and sexual orientation. So one question I find particularly interesting when it comes to um, the normative dimensions of sexual preferences is the ethical and political implications of describing your sexual preferences in certain ways when, when that interacts with groups that are oppressed society. So there's some really, really interesting work by a philosopher called Robin Zeng about the phenomenon of racialized sexual preferences. So people who will say that they, they only have sexual preferences uh, for people of a particular racial group. So the example that Zeng focuses on is white men saying that they are exclusively attracted to Asian women, and this gets talked about as, as yellow fever. And Zeng argues, and I think um, I, I find the argument very compelling, that these racialized sexual preferences can have really pernicious, really negative and harmful effects on the groups at whom they're directed, even if the preferences seem to be positive, right? So there's a, a preference towards a group that is oppressed. So the preferences, in a sense, seem to be going against the kind of dominant push of, of white supremacy. But Zeng argues there's something... Um, objectifying and undermining about being defined in that way and kind of featuring in someone's preferences purely under a racial stereotype, and that that can have all sorts of harmful like cognitive effects on the people um, at whom their preference is directed, including, for example, not knowing whether someone likes you for who you are or likes you simply because you happen to be an Asian woman. So I think that the interaction between our sexual preferences and the structures of power in which we find ourselves situated is uh, leads to lots of really interesting um, ethical normative issues. One, some questions that I, I think Zeng raises, but you know, has more to say, is about what exactly um, has the harmful effect. Is it the fact, or what exactly should we find normatively troubling? Is it the fact of having certain preferences? that might follow, you know, a, a problematic pattern? Is it the fact of knowing you have those preferences but not doing anything to try and sort of shake them loose? Is it about kind of expressing those preferences, kind of going into the world and saying, like, I am, you know, these are my preferences and I'm proud of that and, and kind of presenting that, uh, endorsing that, holding it up as something that's not problematic? What is it exactly that, that, that someone might do that would be normatively problematic? Where does the, where does the sort of normative problem enter into the picture? Is it with just the having of the preferences or is it sort of further downstream, as it were? So I think those are some of the issues, the normative issues involved in sexuality that I find particularly interesting. Could you explain about the conceptual analysis of sexuality? Right. So there's a couple of... Um, there's a couple of ways to take this. So, so there's people doing conceptual analysis about the nature of sexual desire and sexual pleasure that we talked about a bit before. And as I said, I find that I find that a little bit funny that we would kind of set out to do a sort of armchair conceptual analysis of sexuality without really bringing in the social dimensions or the socially constructed dimensions of that. So I think when it comes to conceptual analysis of sexual desire or sexual pleasure, what the sexual, then we need to think very hard about social construction. But, of course, you can have conceptual analysis, more of the things uh, that we've just been talking about, more to do with sexual orientation, for example. So people might say, okay, what does it mean? What, what, what is the concept of sexual orientation when we 
say that someone has a certain sex orientation? What are we saying? Is there a phenomenon in the world that we're responding to? Is there perhaps more than one phenomenon in the picture here? So the conceptual analysis of sexuality can sort of be taken in either of those ways. I think both are interesting. Now, does sex really have any value? Well, I think it must have... I mean, I think there's some senses in which it clearly has value. It has value in the sense that it's something that people often enjoy. I suppose the question that people have been interested in is whether sex has a particularly distinctive kind of value, a kind of value that doesn't just put it alongside other pleasurable activities, or perhaps doesn't just put it alongside other activities that kind of foster intimacy or foster connection between people. I'm inclined to think, and this isn't something I've specifically researched, but I'm inclined to think, no, not really. I think that sex is valuable insofar as it's valuable to people, and it can be valuable to people for all sorts of reasons, including pleasure and intimacy. And so I think, yes, sex does have value, but whether it has uh, some kind of special, distinctive value, kind of value as sex rather than value as pleasure-inducing or intimacy-enhancing, um, I'm inclined to think not. Do you think that philosophers should carry out conceptual analysis and the study of sexual ethics separately? Now, that's a really interesting question, and I think it very much depends on what you have in mind by conceptual analysis. So here's something that you might set out to find out. You might just want to know, when people talk about sexual orientation, what do they take themselves to be talking about? What do they think that they mean? And that's a perfectly um, reasonable question to ask, and I think it's something that we can describe uh, very well as conceptual analysis. But I think it's something that you can you can go away and investigate that quite fine without thinking much about sexual ethics. You could separate that from sexual ethics, and that would be perfectly reasonable. Another thing you might want to find out about is whether there's something in the world that we are responding to or kind of tracking or latching onto, maybe imperfectly, when we talk about sexual orientation. Uh, and again, that seems like quite a descriptive project. It seems like if you wanted to separate that from normative questions, it seems that that would be perfectly doable. Where I think conceptual analysis and the study of sexual ethics do sort of, it does make sense to think of them uh, together, is in what tends to get called ameliorative analysis. So this is where the question is, how could we use this concept to kind of better capture what matters to us in this situation. So, for example, to say, okay, well, maybe people are using the concept of sexual orientation in, in, in a bunch of different ways, um, but, like, if we wanted to try and get our usage to coalesce around a shared sense of what that means, what would that shared sense be? What would it be good for it to be? What would um, help us kind of achieve what we want to achieve in this context? And there it seems like the study of of, of normative issues and kind of ethical issues have to be in the picture and indeed political issues because if you wanted to know, you know, what do you want to achieve or maybe you want to bring about a reduction in the oppression of, of people with queer and um, sexual identities or sexual experiences, then that's a normative, you know, a normatively laden goal, a goal. And what you will be looking for then is a way of thinking about and talking about and conceiving of sexual orientation, for example, in this case, uh, that serves that purpose, that serves that function. So I think when it comes to kind of revisionary analysis, ameliorative analysis, analysis that's trying to guide our practice and not just describe it, then the study of kind of sexual ethics is sort of baked into that particular type of conceptual analysis. Yeah, it, it was interesting when you were speaking about sexual orientation and, and sex because 
I met this fellow once who told me that he was gay. That was his sexual orientation. But he, um, I think he was in his 50s, and he he told me that he'd never had sex with anybody because he'd never really found anybody that he, he really wanted to be intimate with. And I thought, well, that's right. that's quite interesting, isn't it? How he he has a sexual identity even though he's never had sex. Yeah, that is an interesting case. And um, people talk about cases like that in the literature. Other um, cases that people talk about include um, people who have sort of actively decided to be celibate, maybe for religious reasons, whatever whatever reasons. As I understand it, the consensus is that we our, our ordinary concept of sexual orientation does seem for us to seem to allow for us to say things like, yes, uh, the person that you talked to, for example, was, was a gay man. And, and the way that people often think about that is in terms of dispositions. So if you think about the disposition of fragility, if something is fragile, that means it has a disposition to shatter when you know, uh, brought into contact with a hard surface. So a glass, we might say, is fragile, meaning that if we dropped it on a hard floor, it would smash, you know, all else being equal, or it would, it would tend to do that. And people often think about sexual orientation in the same, in a similar kind of way. It's about what kind of sexual behaviour you're you're disposed to want to engage in. And and just as a glass can be fragile, even if it's never dropped, in the same way, a person can have a sexual orientation, even if they've never actually engaged in any sexual activity um, with anyone. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. And another friend of mine that I'd known for many years, I remember I was having a conversation with a friend and she said that Jeff must be asexual. And I hadn't really oh, heard that term very much, but I thought, oh, okay, and that, it sort of made me interested and I looked into the term a, a bit more. But, but the the thing was, is it, we, we'd known Jeff for like over 20 years, but when we went to his funeral, he had a, had a couple of old, old friends turn up who knew him when he was in his 20s, and they said that Jeff had got up to all sorts of things and had, had multiple girlfriends at the time, and one fellow said, oh, Jeff had often, if he, he didn't pick a girl up from the dance, he'd, he'd steal his girlfriend, and, and I thought, wow, that's just, you know, I, I, was, I suppose you never know anybody until you go to their funeral, really, do you? But it really sort of shocked us. So do you, do you think people throughout their lives sort of change their sexual orientation? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's a really interesting, that case raises a really interesting question of whether people change their sexual orientation to their life. It's not something I, I know a lot about specifically, but my understanding would be that a lot of people report changing their sexual orientation uh, at different times in their life. And I'm inclined to think that that's, that the fact that people, just, that there are a significant number of people who describe their experiences that way is like a good reason to tend towards thinking about it in, in a way that makes that possible. Like, I would tend to say that the, just the fact that people tend to say that they that there are a significant number of people who describe their experience as being one in which their sexual orientation was different at different times in their life, that, that to me, that would lead me towards thinking of it in a way that makes that possible, just because being equal, I think, getting a concept of sexual orientation that kind of chimes with people's experiences and how they describe them is something we should be aiming for. But one thing I'd like to note about that that's bit of a complicating factor is that I think there's some 
oppressive tendencies or ways of thinking that can make it seem like people have changed their orientation when they haven't. And I think this is particularly relevant when it comes to people who are bisexual or pansexual or not non-monosexual, to, to, to use that phrase. So if you're a, a bisexual person, for example, if you're a bi woman and you're in a relationship with a woman, and then you end that relationship and then you're in a relationship with a man, I think it's quite common for people to have the experience where other people say, oh, you used to be a lesbian and now you're straight. So there's this tendency to take whatever the gender or sex of someone's current partner is and then project that onto their sexuality. And so somebody might experience themselves as having a bisexual or a pansexual orientation that, you know, is just a consistent thing throughout their life. But from the outside, other people might impose a reading of that situation according to which the person has been changing their sexual orientation. Now they're a lesbian, now they're a straight woman, now they're a lesbian again. And I think that that is very problematic because it contributes to some really negative stereotypes of bisexual people and and pansexual people as um, indecisive uh, or untrustworthy. The issue of people changing their sex orientation is quite a complicated one. Yes, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I think bisexual people get a really bad rap in the media and people sort of think that, that bisexual people are, are dishonest or they're more likely to cheat on their exactly. partners or, or they're oversexed or all these, all these crazy ideas. But material implications as well. When I meet somebody and they say they admit they're bisexual, I just think, well, you know, that, that just shows that they're a really honest person to come out and say that when they're given such a, a bad rap about it. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of things there. What's, um, sorry for interrupting you. So one of the things there is that coming, coming out as bisexual can be something because of this constant assumption that people will, will if you have a sexual, if you have a partner, then people will, will just assume that they know what that your sexuality is based on that, which obviously doesn't work if you're bisexual. And um, so there's a sense in which perhaps, I mean, this is true for many other people as well, but I think particularly with bisexuality, there's a sense of having to constantly come out and disrupt those assumptions. And um, the other thing to mention is that, yeah, the stigma that you, that you were describing where people think of, of bisexual people as, as untrustworthy has some really, uh, really material implications. So for example, you can see it in um, you know, high rates of uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence against bi people, so especially, I think, by women. So, yeah, there are material kind of implications to these stigmas and uh, biases in our ways of thinking about sexual orientation that are really harmful. Yeah, that's right. Do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, I have a, have a few things that I've been thinking about. One thing that I'm interested in is thinking a bit more about bisexuality and, and biphobia and how that all works. I've done some work in this field, so sort of the paper that I have that's probably most obviously counts as philosophy of sex is a paper actually about the philosopher Andrea Dworkin, who's a feminist philosopher, who, whose work I find very, very interesting. She's very critical of um, heterosexual ideology has what you would think of probably as a radical feminist uh, perspective. And I find her work really interesting. So I've done a little bit of, I've already got one paper on that, and I'd like to revisit her work and think about it a bit more in relation to sort of these bigger questions in um, philosophy of sex. So, so really kind of trying to bring the patriarchy into that analysis and see what's going on there. I find that very interesting. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, I've been speaking with Assistant Professor Catherine Jenkins about sex and sexuality.
Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.